Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus and that you so loved us that you sent your one and only Son. We thank you for the price that was paid and the willingness of Jesus to pay that price so that we might be forgiven and might have this wonderful relationship with you today as our Heavenly Father and we as your dearly loved children. As we begin this Advent season, we pray that this great love and the miracle of Christ's coming and the extent of the work that he has done for us would be made new in our hearts, in our understanding, in our gratitude, and that we would overflow with joy because a Savior has been given to us, who is Christ the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus to us as we open the word today? In his name we pray, amen. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. It is the beginning of the Christian year calendar. Last Sunday was Christ the King Sunday. And human history is going to end on that day when Jesus comes to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over all creation. And so we begin this cycle of observing Jesus with this first Sunday of Advent today. And we will go through the next few weeks with this focus on anticipating the coming of Jesus. And we are going to spend time specifically thinking about the incarnation of God and what it meant for God to become man, to take on human form in order to be the sacrifice for our sins. When we look at several passages of Scripture, this is what we find. And God the Word, who created all things in existence, and through whom all things in existence throughout the universe are sustained and maintained, set aside his prerogatives as God to become a human, and take the nature of a slave, dying as a criminal on the cross for the sinful actions of humanity, thereby obtaining forgiveness and justification for sinners. Do you understand what Jesus has done? As God the Word, he has allowed himself to be recreated in human form. And Jesus did it to save the almost extinct species of humanity. Everyone who had sinned and everyone who was condemned. And Jesus did it by becoming a human, taking the nature of a slave, and dying as a criminal on the cross for your sin and for my sin. You see, this is what the birth of Jesus Christ is all about. Let's think for a moment about what we believe. There are many Christians who, if they were to articulate 
what Christmas truly means. Would really know diddly squat about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the definition of diddly squat, it means to be of no value whatsoever. So here is what we say within the word incarnation, within the coming of Jesus Christ. These are the things that we confess and preach concerning Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Jesus, Lord in Christ, is the unique Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. He is truly and eternally God, of one substance with the Father. Existing as the Word, He was in the beginning with God the Father, and was God. We confess and preach that like the Father and the Spirit, Jesus the Son, the Word God, is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, truth, love, and grace. He is eternal, unchangeable, infinite God. Jesus, which is His human name, is truly God and truly man. Yet one person, the Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is complete and perfect in his deity and also in his humanity, and yet he is one person. For the two natures are joined inseparably without confusion. We confess and preach that in the fullness of time, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, apart from the will or action of any man. And that in this act and process of incarnation, Jesus, the Word God, became a man and took a human nature, including a true human body, soul, mind, will, and emotions. In his humanity, Jesus possessed all the weaknesses of human nature, but none of the sin, nor the sinful nature that characterizes humanity. The incarnation of Jesus initiated the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption for the human race. In Scripture, we find that Jesus exercised the offices of prophet, priest, and king in his role as mediator, and especially took on human flesh, that he might suffer in that flesh as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. This is what we are speaking of. Every one of these aspects are central to the coming of Jesus Christ, to who he is, for why he came, for what he has accomplished for us. The first four books of the New Testament are known as the Gospels. The word gospel means good news we see the, an understanding of it when the angels appeared to the shepherds 
on the night that Jesus was born with the announcement, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word gospel means good news. Each one of the gospel writers documents the life and the work of Jesus, and does so from a different perspective because of writing to different audiences and to highlight a different aspect of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And Matthew is emphasizing the fact that Jesus was truly Jewish in his ancestry. Therefore, he's the Messiah, the one that God had promised. He fulfills all the promises of God for the one who would come as the Savior and the King of God's people. And so to present Jesus to a Jewish audience, Matthew begins with something that is very important to a Jew, his background, his heritage, his genealogy. Now, for many people, Ancestry.com, DNA kits are a big deal. People want to know what's in their background. Where did they come from? Some people are surprised at the results. Some people find out some things about their past that they wish they had never known, and some people in their family tree that they would rather not be associated with. Well, when we open the pages of Scripture and we open to the first page of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, we begin to read a genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew opens with these words of identity about Jesus, and they are very important because every Jew would trace his heritage back to Abraham, the father of the nation, the one whom God called to come out of the land where he was and to be God's chosen, set-apart one. God made covenant, unbreakable promises with Abraham. And Matthew traces the history of Jesus, beginning with Abraham, all the way down to his birth, through his human parents. As Matthew begins to relate to us all the different people in the line of Jesus, he comes to this point and says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And then he continued, talking about the present moment in time. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this is a fascinating passage of scripture here in Matthew chapter 1. It's a huge portion of it is the kind that most of us like to skip over really fast, maybe not even read. A list of names. And yet, embedded within all those names and the details of who's who are a number of significant identities, identifying factors concerning Jesus. We read them right here in this passage. We'll look at them a little more closely. Who is Jesus? Well, Matthew begins by telling us that he is a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. In fact, Jesus can trace his heritage directly back, as every Jew could, to Abraham, making him an authentic Jew, a true Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham. Matthew also tells us that he is the son of David. Now, David was the foremost king of Israel. In fact, Matthew identifies him as King David. Not every Jew could trace their heritage back to David. And so it's deeply significant that Jesus is a true son of David. He also calls him the Christ. The Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. They both mean anointed one. An anointed one was one that God set apart. Kings were anointed. Significant people were anointed for a particular role, like Aaron was anointed to be the high priest for the people of Israel, a mediator between them and God. Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one. Matthew tells us that he is the son of Mary. Now in the story about the birth of Jesus, Matthew tells us that Joseph discovered that his fiancée, the one to whom he was engaged or betrothed, and in the Jewish world, a betrothal or an engagement in our language was as binding as the marriage itself. He discovered that she was pregnant. Obviously, she had been unfaithful to him. Or so Joseph surmised. But an angel of the Lord came to him in a dream and said, Joseph, 
what you are thinking and what would be logical in human understanding is not what has occurred. She is pregnant through a conception by God the Holy Spirit. And the one to whom she will give birth will be Jesus, the Savior. And the angel told Joseph that he is to be called Jesus. Now, Jesus is the New Testament, New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament or Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And Jesus would have a human name that specifically identified him as a savior. But what kind of savior? Israel had had many saviors. Saviors who liberated them nationally from an oppressive foreign power. But Jesus was going to be a different kind of savior. He would save his people from their sins. And then Matthew also gives us one other identification regarding Jesus. He is Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us that Emmanuel means God with us. This one conceived by the Holy Spirit within the Virgin Mary and born as a human being named Jesus would literally be God in human form. And when he was born, it would fulfill a promise that God had made some 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah that a virgin would be with child and would give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel. So what do we understand? In short, there is nothing that is ordinary about this one who is known as Jesus. As the seed of Abraham, he is the one through whom all nations are blessed. As the son of David, he is heir to the throne of Israel. As the Christ, he is one designated above all others for the fulfillment of all of God's intentions and promises. And as Jesus, he is designated to be Savior of sinners. As Emmanuel, he is God. God in human form through a supernatural birth. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Because they speak to what we have just seen here in Matthew's gospel. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Well, let's take a moment and look at Matthew's genealogy. 
Look at the family tree of Jesus. Take a look at the descendants that he lists here. The reality is that Jesus comes from a bad family tree. He comes from a sordid family history. Let's look at some of the personalities, some of the names that Matthew lists. He tells us about Tamar. Now, Tamar had been married to one of Judah's sons. Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. But her husband, Judah's son, died. And Tamar was not given, as was the custom, one of Judah's other sons to continue the family line. And so she seduced her father-in-law by playing the role of a prostitute. And from that incestuous act between Judah and Tamar, two sons were born to Judah, Perez and Zerah. And they are part of the family tree of Jesus. Matthew tells us about Rahab. Verse 5, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute, and she was also the great-grandmother of King David. King David's grandmother was Ruth, also mentioned in verse 5. And she was a converted idol worshiper from a nation that God had cursed many years before because of their immorality, seducing the men of Israel, when they were making their way to the promised land. These two are included in the family tree of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus also includes about 15 kings. Half of them are considered godly kings, and yet, almost without exception, every one of them was compromised in some way did something that was outside of the will of God, failed, marred their good leadership with a final bad act. The others who are listed were prolific in their wickedness. King David's son Solomon was born out of an affair with another man's wife. One of King David's descendants and one of the ancestors of Jesus was King Ahaz, verse 9. King Ahaz, as soon as he became king, submitted himself to the pagan, ungodly, idol-worshipping king of Assyria. King Ahaz went on to set up pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. He sacrificed his own son by fire on a pagan altar. And then later on in his leadership, he stripped the temple in deference to the king of Assyria of particular things that represented God's holy and covenant relationship with his people. And then there was King Manasseh, verse 10. 
King Manasseh was more ungodly and wicked than any other king that ruled the kingdom of Judah. He worshiped Baal and he worshiped the stars. He sacrificed his own son alive in the fire to these idol gods. He practiced sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. And the record tells us in 2 Kings that he provoked the Lord to anger more than any other king who had preceded him. It is into this family tree of saints and sinners that Jesus was born as the son of Mary. Through the conception of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew tells us that he was recorded for this singular purpose. He will save his people from their sins. Now looking back at that family tree, aren't you glad that that's not in your background? You don't have those kinds of people in your past. Your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-grandfather. Guilty of some hideous crime, some terrible sin. And yet the fact of the reality is, this was not just the family tree of Jesus. This is your family tree. This is my family tree. This is the human family tree. The Apostle Paul writing to the Romans said, All have sinned. There is none that does good. All have become worthless in the sight of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single one of us who is not a sinner. In fact, Every one of us has corrupted our family tree. Every one of us is part of a sinful human family tree. And every one of us is why Jesus came. For the purpose of saving his people from their sins. The writer to Hebrews goes on to say in verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This is why Jesus came. This is why he came in the way that he did. This is why he, as God, who made everything, through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, within the womb of Mary, became human, made like us in every way, in order that he could save us from our sins by making atonement, by paying the price, by settling the debt, by making us right with God. You see, there was no other way to save our species, no other way to save us from the guilt, the disease of sin, and from the ultimate death 
that that disease would bring us. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will surely die. And lest any, lest any of us think that we are good, the Apostle John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to back up the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle John supported that statement by saying, if anyone says that he is without sin, he is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us are part of a sinful family tree of humanity. And in love for every single one of us, Jesus came to die as a substitute in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, if anyone declares that they are not a sinner, then the very reason for which Jesus came, they are saying, does not apply to them. And if Jesus came to save sinners, and he is the only way through whom sinners can be saved, then there is no way for anyone to be saved except by acknowledging that they are a sinner and looking to Jesus. Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus who thought that because he was a Jew who followed all of the rules, that he was automatically qualified for eternal life in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, I tell you, that unless someone is born again, by putting their faith in me, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was laying out the roadmap for salvation, the reason for which he had come. And then he went on to say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish will not die for their sins, but will have eternal life. And then he went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In his ministry, Jesus would say, I didn't come for people who think they don't need me. I came for sinners. You see, there is something that is so liberating about you and I declaring that we are sinners, that we have come from a long line of sinners. There is something that is so valuable about the Holy Spirit not sanitizing the family tree of Jesus and only presenting the good people the way that you and I would if we were telling about our past and our background. He included every sinner and the worst that they had done to show us that when Jesus came to save sinners, there's no one that he cannot save. 
that his atoning death is sufficient for all of our sins. And that there is no one so far gone, so far outside of the grace of God, so wrong in the sight of God, to be incapable of being saved. Because Jesus is God and is infinite. And because he came and died in our place as our human substitute, he is fully sufficient to save us from all of our sins. And that is the good news that the angel was announcing to the shepherds. That is the good news that everyone who believes in Jesus receives, accepts, prays and trusts into. The Apostle John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul wrote and said that Jesus died as an atonement for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was raised in resurrection life. The payment was paid. And he was raised in resurrection life that you and I might be justified before God. No guilt, no condemnation. The price of our sin paid. And you and I made infinitely righteous before God because of the infinite merit of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you again this morning of why Jesus came. His first coming was to be the Savior of the sins of everyone who would look to him and trust him. He came into the world to save sinners. Anyone who does, does not acknowledge that they are sinners will never be saved. But every one of us who acknowledges that we have sinned against God and we put our trust in Jesus, we will be saved, not condemned before God. The first coming of Jesus also reminds us that Jesus is coming back again. The writer to Hebrews tells us that he will appear a second time, not to provide an atonement for sins, but to bring the fullness of eternal life to those who have trusted him for salvation from sin. If you know Jesus today as your Savior, if you have come to him to say, I am guilty of sinning, but I trust in the work that you came to do for me. And I confess that as a sinner, I need your saving work. Then you are forgiven of your sins and you have eternal life. But I also urge you that if that is the case, then live a life towards Jesus. Not one that is toward the sin of this world around you, but one that is living in expectation of his second coming. When he is coming for those who are looking for him, their savior. 
If you have never turned to Jesus and never trusted him to forgive you of your sins, he is offering the opportunity not to be condemned, but to be made right with God. All you and I need to do is to say, Jesus, I believe that you came to save me from my sins. I confess that I have sinned against the law of God. I can think of when I have lied, when I have deceived, when I have cheated, when I have stolen. When I have done this, I've done that. I know that I am not right before you. But I know that Jesus came for me. And I confess that I need Jesus as my Savior. The Word of God tells us that in that moment, in that moment of confession of faith, in Jesus and the work that he has done for us, our sins are forgiven. We are made right with God. And we possess the gift of eternal life. I encourage you today, urge you today, make sure that you have trusted Jesus as the Savior who has come to save you from your sins. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you on this first Sunday of Advent that directs our attention to you and why you came to your birth and the purpose of you coming. That you did not consider it beneath you to save our species. That you did not want to leave us to the outcome and the consequences of our sin, but that you were willing to come and as our substitute to die in our place. And so we thank you for such great love that motivated you. And we confess our need of you as Savior. And we put our trust in you today. Father, I pray that everyone who has previously put their trust in Jesus will be reminded of the great price and the great work that Jesus has done for them. And that with all their hearts, they would live toward the second coming of Jesus. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone who has heard the word of the Lord today and has not trusted Jesus, that in this moment your Holy Spirit would be able to draw them and that they would surrender their lives to Jesus and confess him as their Savior and put their trust in him. May they come to know Jesus today as their Savior and have the gift of eternal life. In his name I pray, amen. <music>